Revelation chapter 7. Um, sometimes when God is working his purposes, he pauses. He doesn't pause because he doesn't have everything ready and he's got to kind of get it together. He doesn't pause because he forgot what he was going to do. He has to remember. He doesn't pause because of any real reason except that now's the time to hold off because something else needs to happen. That's what we find in Revelation 7. In Revelation 6, the scroll is beginning to be opened. There are seven seals on the scroll in the Lamb's hand. And as He opens each of the first six seals, God's judgment is beginning to unfold. When He opens the first seal, there's a man on a white horse conquering. When He opens the second seal, there's one on a bright red horse making war. On the third seal appears one riding a black horse. Famine, when he opens the fourth seal, the pale horse of death. When he opens the fifth seal, the scene transforms back to heaven and he hears the crying of martyrs through the ages saying to God, when are you going to vindicate us? When are you going to vindicate your name? And he tells them to wait, gives them white robes and says, the time is coming, but your number is not yet complete. When he opens the sixth seal, oh, nature violently responds. Earthquakes. The sun becomes black. The moon becomes blood red. And the stars fall from the sky. The sky rolls up like a scroll that's been ripped in two. And it doesn't matter whether you were a king or a street sweeper. In that day, you were terrified. They were begging John tells us the rocks to fall on them so that they could escape the wrath of God. And they pose a question at the end of verse 16. Who can stand? When God is unleashing His wrath, who can stand it? Who can, who can survive? Who can not be destroyed? And it's at this moment that God says, pause. Now at this point you would be expecting, with all of this, what does the seventh feel going to happen when that last seal is open and that scroll is rolled out? What kind of catastrophe awaits? What kind of judgment could God have that's worse than this? But in the plan of God, sometimes He hits pause because there's another work that has to happen first. Revelation chapter 7 is the pause. If you're a good storyteller, you know especially in a long story, that you don't just give it all away early. You get into the tension quickly, and then you sit there. I, I was watching the other day. Carrie was watching. I was kind of watching, but she was more watching um, The Sound of Music. And there's an intermission. Many of these plays and, and, and longer shows have an intermission in the middle of them because you can't hold it that long you got to go to the bathroom or something you know it give you that chance and so there is this intermission and just before the intermission there's this height in the tension that gets that doesn't get resolved good storytellers will do that in this case there's a height to the tension 
What could happen next? And in Revelation chapter 7, John's eyes are taken from the destruction that's happening on the earth to a set of four angels. Read with me. Revelation 7, 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Again, this is poetic language. The earth does not have corners. He knows that. He's speaking poetically. Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. God's judgment right now is being held back by four angelic beings. If they let go, the immensity of God's wrath will be poured out. You might say, well, if God wants it to happen, why are the angels stopping it? I think God has told them, hold it for a minute. You see, because sometimes when God is working His purpose, He hits pause on one aspect of the plan so that He can turn His focus to another aspect of the plan. And in this case, we see that the focus goes from punishing the wicked to preserving those who are not wicked. Look in, look at verse 3 again. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God. This isn't the first time we talk about sealing in the Bible. In fact, it's not the first time that the righteous are indicated as being sealed. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God is about to leave the temple. The sins of Judah are so great. The sins of the Israelite are so vast that God is pouring out His punishment on His people. But before He does that, He hits pause and He says, all right, now the glory of the Lord, Ezekiel writes, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested. That would be the Ark of the Covenant. He is moving the Ark of the Covenant to the threshold of the house. So he gets off the holiest place and he goes to the doorway about to leave the temple. But before he do goes, he does something. Verse 4 in Ezekiel 9, And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city. He's talking to a man an angel that looks like a man with a writing tablet and case. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And so he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go through the city and I want you to mark on every single individual who is broken over the sin of this city. The ones that are righteous enough to feel the heart of God broken over sin. Seal them. Mark them. Why mark them? Well, we find out in the next verse. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one 
on whom is the mark. God is going to pour out his judgment, but he will not pour out his judgment on the ones that are marked. And so he tells the first guy, go mark the right ones. And he tells everybody after him, go kill everyone else. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar. In Exodus, the story of the Passover, except the blood be on the door, the angel of death comes and kills the firstborn. God's judgment on the people of Egypt, from the greatest to the least, the paupers and the Pharaoh both experience the same judgment of God. But the ones on whom's door the blood of the Lamb is found, He passes over. Those that are under the mark are the ones that are spared. I point this out because we often think, well, I guess it's, I guess it's late. Nothing we can do now. And yet God says, even though my judgment has already begun, it's not too late because I still have some that don't need to face my wrath. What does he do? Well, he does what he's been doing for Christians ever since Christ came. He seals them. Maybe, maybe you remember, um, maybe you remember back in the, God, the, the letter to the Ephesian church. Paul talks to the Ephesians and he says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also. He's saying those that are the first generation are to the praise of his glory, but now you Ephesians who are kind of second generation, the ones who have been saved after the first, the ones who the missionaries have come to and been shown what God has said and have believed in Christ kind of as a second generation, the ones that come behind the first, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, get this, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's not the only time he mentions that. He mentions it to the Corinthians. You know the Corinthians. They're the ones that can't get anything right. <laughs> They're fighting over who's the best teacher. They got people in the church that are doing all kinds of crazy things. They have people that are gorging themselves at communion. You know why we have the little tiny wafers and the little bit of juice? Because those guys couldn't control themselves. We, could, we might could have a full meal today if it wasn't for them. In talking to the Corinthians in his second letter, Paul says, And it is God who establishes you, us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Get what he's saying. God has put his spirit on us as believers as his seal. We are his. We have the mark. I, maybe I should have titled this sermon, Do You Have the Mark? But in Revelation chapter 7, we see some folks that don't yet have the mark, and so they're given the mark. And I heard, 7-4, the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. Mitchell, I need you to sit up and not make noise. 
Thank you, buddy. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. So the angel tells these four, holding back the winds, holding back the judgment of God, wait, we have to seal some folks first. God has pause on his plan of judgment in order to seal those that belong to him. Paul referenced this when he talked in Romans. He talked about a day in which God would remove the blinders off of their eyes so that they could recognize the Messiah and follow him. God hasn't forsaken Israel. God hasn't thrown them to the wayside. Some people think that, that oh, well, well the, the church is what God's doing now, and that's just it. Once God deals with the church, I, I got to be honest with you. I think it's a little bit proud to say God only cares about you. Don't y'all think that? From the dawning of creation, through the promises that he made to Abraham, to Moses, to David, all through the generations, God has loved Israel. And I'm not talking about the geopolitical nation. I'm not just talking about those that are ethnically Jewish. I'm talking about the remnant of Israel, the ones that truly believe in God, truly follow Him. And yes, they're ethnic, but they're more than just ethnic. God still loves them, still cares for them, and still has a plan for them. And come Revelation chapter 7, He's going to mark the ones that are His. Some people say this is symbolic of the church. Why name all the tribes? I don't think it's symbolic of the church. I think he's actually saying, I'm going to remove the blinders off the eyes so that the Jews who truly love me will see Christ as Messiah. Because that's what he's talking about. He's talking about him loving Israel enough not to abandon them. I mean, he's the, he is the God that says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's also the one Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. So we have to understand that God has a purpose, not just for those of us who are Gentiles who trust in Christ, not just for the Jews that realize that Jesus is Messiah now, but for the ones that are still seeking Messiah, still loving God, still trying to find the way to Him, begging, longing, praying, yearning for the day that Messiah is revealed. One day their eyes will be opened and they will see Him. Do I believe it's exactly 144,000? Probably not, but, you know, let's go round figures. That's okay. We can estimate, right? It's a, it's a whole lot. It actually, 144,000 um, is a number that will reappear later on when we see the New Jerusalem. Some of the dimensions of the city. This will sound familiar. It's a number that shows a total completion. Seven is complete. A thousand is kind of that perfect number, right? Twelve tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. That's the complete of the complete. You see what I'm saying here? He's saying, I'm going to save every single one. And if it's 143,999 or if it's 144,001, doesn't matter. I'm going to get every single one of them and I'm going to seal them. Now, I do believe there are Jews, this need not be the whole, the whole 
set of Jews, um, I do believe there are some that will still reject, just like there are some Gentiles that reject. But his plan for Israel ain't done. And what's amazing to me is sometimes we think, okay, God works in, he can only work with one group of people at a time, apparently, because he's got to work with Israel up until Jesus. And once Jesus rises from the dead, he suddenly works with this new group of people called the church. And then once he takes the church home, he goes back to Israel. Like he can't work with both at the same time. I mean, he is God. In fact, I'll prove you he can work with both at the same time. Look in verse 9. He strikes right straight from Israel and starts talking about another group. After this, I look, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. In other words, he sees that these 144,000 are sealed, and immediately thereafter, he sees this giant multitude up in heaven. Uh, A multitude no one could number. What does that sound familiar? Abraham, wasn't the promise to him, your descendants will be innumerable, like the stars in the sky, like grains of sand on the shore? Anybody try to catch grains of sand lately? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's not very easy, is it? A multitude no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. How you divide folks up, they're all going to be there. This isn't because God has a quota to meet and he's got to get so many of each type. This is just because the gospel is going to go out to the world and somebody is going to accept. One of the greatest, one of the greatest fallacies that we have is thinking, oh, well, they, they're not interested in Jesus. Have you, have you asked? Have you told them? Have you given them the chance? It's amazing what God does among people that get a Bible in their language for the first time. There are some, there are, there are some missionaries that not only, not only do they have to translate the Bible into their language, there are some missionaries that have to create a language, a written form of the language, so that they can have something to write a Bible in. And yet God's word still goes to them. I think of, I think of the Psalm where, where he says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The skies proclaim the work of your hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no voice, language. There is no tongue or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the ends of the earth. That's what the gospel does. It bypasses all the barriers. Now, sometimes it takes some hard work to get past a barrier. Sometimes it takes a lot of work to get a Bible in a language. Sometimes it takes a lot of work for a missionary to learn a language, to be able to go. But the gospel's going to go, and it'll do what it sets out to do. My word will not return to me void, he tells Isaiah, but it will accomplish everything for which I sent it. So he looks and he sees this multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, can you imagine if we tried to get a whole language all in the same room here, what a cacophony of noise that would be. Can you imagine the differences, the various smells? You ever smelled someone from a different culture? You ever you, 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 think of the dramatically different fashion styles in here. If we, if we filled this room with people from all over the world, there'd be, there'd be quite an assortment say the least. There'd be people, there'd be people that'd be wearing crazy things. Some people wouldn't be wearing anything. 
There'd be people be speaking languages that you don't even recognize as a human language. There'd be people that would have all sort of decorum. There would be people quiet, refused to speak. Others that wouldn't shut up. About three hours late, there'd arrive a whole bunch of people from other cultures that don't really care about time. What an amazing diversity there is around the world. And in this one scene, you see people from all over. And I'm not just talking about from from each of the cardinal directions. I'm talking about from places you've never seen or heard of. People that you can't imagine. And they're all there. And what's interesting is they're standing before the throne, before the Lamb. Verse 9, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb i mean this isn't the first time that phrase has been uttered when david was running from absalom he was he was talking to god in in a way complaining about the hardships that he was facing we can read about it in Psalm chapter 3, he talks about the fact that his foes are so many and rising up against him and how God is his shield. How many said of him, there is no salvation in his God. He talks about God sustaining him and then he says this, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And now, I don't know how long later, testament half away, here is a group of people that are God's people and that could not be more different, all united together, praising God because His is the salvation. This is another place where we really get confused. We think salvation belongs to us. We think that it's our salvation. It's my salvation. Well, let me tell you about my salvation, we might say. We might think of what God has done in us as though, as though it was something that was unique to us, that, 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 that it belongs to us, like it's our possession, like it's ours to hold, ours to remember, ours to, ours to talk about. And in one sense, it is ours. It is our experience, but it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Him. His is the salvation. It's His salvation. It's not mine. Lest I forget who really did it. He's the one who does it from start to finish. All I can do is be an active participant to receive it and to live in it. Salvation belongs to our God. And all the angels, verse 11, were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. You know it's true when you can start it with Amen. Maybe the Amen and that salvation belongs to God. The one who's on the throne to the Lamb. The one who's doing His work. By the way, um, don't worship anything that isn't God because they pale in comparison to Him. I say that because they're worshiping the God on the throne and the Lamb. That's okay because they're God. They're both one God. Don't ask me how that works. Blessing. They say amen. Blessing. Kind of a praise. Eulogy is the word. Glory, all glory. I, I, someone said glory is better um, demonstrated than defined. 
I think that's true. You just can't quite define it. You can't quite put a textbook definition on it. But man, you know it when you see it. And boy, will we see it in that day. Blessing and glory and wisdom. Not just knowing good things, but knowing how to use them, doing them. Thanksgiving. You know, it's amazing um, how little sin breeds in a thankful heart. It's almost... Okay, let me give you this. Thomas Watson said this phrase, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but he said that sin is a joy for Satan for when anger and lust ignite the fire in men's hearts. Satan warms himself by its side. Thankfulness is like a bunch of cold water dumped on the fire. How can you be angry when you're thankful? You ever tried that? It's really hard. How can you lust after something or someone else when you're thankful? It just goes completely against... How can you seek to worship another God when you're thankful to the true living God? It doesn't work. It's like pouring a bunch of ice water directly on the fire and extinguishing it. You see, what what happens when we turn ourselves to look at God, to praise Him, to thank Him, to magnify Him, we stop looking at ourselves in the light of what can I do for me. We stop caring about what we get, what we have, what we deserve. We don't have the mindset that thinks, how am I going to take care of me? Because we don't care about us anymore. When we start magnifying God, God takes the central piece of our focus. When He takes that central position in our line of vision, nothing else matters. Nothing else really matters anyway. But as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim. And honor. The word that's used here. The word that's used here, you could you you might say it this way. Wait. There's a Hebrew word that this this word often translates in the Old Testament that literally means weighty. In fact, in the commandment, honor your father and your mother, the word that's used there means make them weighty. You ever hear from someone and they say something like, you know, I I, I really, I give a lot of weight to what he says. Someone that gives particularly good advice, someone who's particularly wise, someone who's been there for a long time before you hear them and they tell you something and you think, I really... I I really need to give that weight. That's what it's talking about. Giving God the weight. What does God say? Oh, yeah, yeah, men say this and whatever. Okay, fine. But what does God say? I want to know what the king of kings thinks of this. I want to know what God's perspective is. See, when we do that, it's a lot harder to sin, isn't it? Power. I think of this as the ability to do something. And might is the ability to complete it. Think of power like what gets the ball rolling and might as as to how that ball knocks over the pins and gets the strike. I think of power like, think of power as what's in that bow when you draw it back. That tension forces that arrow forward. I think of might and that ability to hit the bullseye. Not only to do something, but to do it right. 
Now, all these things are characteristics of God. Now, some of them we might be able to demonstrate. We might be able to demonstrate a little bit of wisdom. We might have a little bit of power. We might have a little bit of might. We might have just a little bit here and there. God doesn't have just a little bit. He's perfect in every single way. They all belong to Him. And they don't just belong to Him on loan, like He's got to return them. It's not like a library book where it's got a due date. Or He starts paying fines. It's look at, look at this. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then, one of the elders comes up to him and says, Who are all these people dressed in white robes? Now, John has figured out something. A, he's ignorant. And B, this guy that keeps asking him questions already knows the answers. This is just a teaching method. So John says, well, sir, you know. That's his way of saying, but I don't. <laughs> the man says, the elder says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him night and day in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Glory, hallelujah, amen, right? I'm looking at this. I don't see where they do any of they, they, They will feed themselves. They'll protect themselves. They'll dry their own tears. I don't see that. Do you see that? It's all Him. But I tell you what they can do. They can answer the question in chapter 6, verse 17. Who can stand? They could say, we can. The most impressive thing to me about this is not the wonderful freedom that we will have on that day from all the trials and tribulations and all the pain and the heartache and the suffering. It's not the fact that we'll never hunger or thirst anymore. Though that's, that's a powerful image in a land that doesn't have much clean water. What strikes me about this is that they can stand before the throne. We can stand before the throne. And it's because of what He's done. That, those aren't even our robes. They're His robes. Washed in His blood. What we see in Revelation chapter 7 is two groups. We can discuss, not tonight, we're out of time. We can discuss whether some of those groups overlap, whether the second group is only the church and the first group is only Israel or vice versa or whatever. We could talk about how, is this the same group viewed from different... We could talk about those kinds of things, but what's obvious to me is that when God has done the work in you, man, does He do the work in you. Next week, we'll hit play and we'll continue the judgment of God. But for now, we can rest on pause knowing that the tension that we have today will one day be resolved by the God who makes all things new. Father, thank you for your promise. I pray, pray that we would look forward with anticipation to that day, but not God, not just in a dr- dreamy state that where we ke- we're no good here. Some people say they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I, I, do, I don't want to be comatose thinking about what will be. But God, when I face the troubles and the tribulation of today, and tomorrow, and next week, and days to come, when I face scary situations, when I face big, bad diseases, or hard, difficult finances, or whatever the case may be, pray that you remind me that this isn't it. 
Help me remember there's one day when you will make all things right. And I will give you the glory and the praise forever and ever. But until then, as one hymn writer wrote, tune my heart to sing your grace. Help me warm up and get ready for an eternity standing before your throne, singing your praises. Father, be with us in this week. In Jesus' name, amen.